It's a real delight to uh, introduce uh, Mimi today. I have to say that both Kitty uh, and I have spent three years trying to convince, uh, find a way to get Mimi here, but she tends to hang out a lot in Japan, but uh, this time we, we grabbed her before she returned or went over to Japan for the summertime. Uh, you know the title of the talk. It's, uh, I think you're going to find this extremely interesting. Uh, Mimi has been overseeing probably the largest ethnography of kids growing up digital uh, ever done in the United States. Um, particularly interesting to me is her ethnographies her, that she does herself actually extend beyond the United States, so she has a very interesting ability to compare some of the things happening here to things happening in, in other parts of Asia. Um, before I turn it over to her, let me just say that uh, Mimi is having a book signing um, this afternoon at 4 o'clock, two of her books, one the Hanging Out, Messing Around, Geeking Out book, uh, the second one, Engineering Play. I think if you went to uh, Richard Florida's talk this morning and uh, Charles' talk later on this afternoon, you would see that the ideas being talked about here actually help us fill in the, the missing gaps uh, for how to really turn out to create a new notion of the creative class. With that, Mimi, thanks. Thanks, John. Uh, so when our research team did our press release about our study that John mentioned of youth online in the U.S., the message that we were trying to get out was fairly straightforward. It was really that kids were engaging in very diverse forms of learning online. Now, what was interesting, though, was that the public uptake of our study, it focused much less on the learning opportunities that we were trying to describe and much more on intergenerational tension. So here's a headline from the San Jose Mercury News. Chill out, parents. Kids glued to the computer gain important skills, study says. So... This was actually a very solid article that conveyed the message that we were trying to get at, that there were a lot of valuable dimensions to kids' social and recreational activity online. At the same time, though, the headline gives voice to some of the underlying problems with how we view learning, intergenerational relations, and new media. So the headline assumes that parents and educators are uptight about kids' online activity, that we think of new media like games, social network sites, and text messaging, that these are at best necessary evils and at worst a serious distraction from learning. Uh, some of you have may, may have seen new books coming out that are suggesting that kids are losing the ability for focused reading and serious writing because of the constant distraction of online activity, because of the bite-sized information that they're getting on the Internet. It's assumed that good parents and educators concerned parents and educators, will want to limit and restrict kids' online activity, and that should be the primary role of adults in this space. So when I was talking to people uh, after the release of our study, I was constantly asked to offer up strategies for how to get kids off the computer so that they could engage in more serious pursuits like homework or healthier pursuits like playing outside. So my question is this. Why is it that we assume that young people socializing and play isn't connected to learning? And on the flip side, why do we assume that learning only happens when young kids, uh, when youth are engaged in schoolwork or other tasks that adults have set up for them? And what would it mean, alternatively, to have kids' social peer networks support learning rather than detract from it? What would that look like? So I think um, not all of you in this room share all these assumptions, and many of you may not have a negative view of kids' social activity online, but I think the issue that all of us recognize is that today's young people are growing up in a radically different media environment from the one that we grew up in. 
So this is a media environment that keeps them connected 24-7 to their peers, to information, and to entertainment. It's a media environment that captures kids' attention through visual media, participation, interaction, challenging educators to reconsider traditional models of instruction. It's a media environment that makes the bedroom and the home porous to a much more diverse range of information and social interaction. It complicates the task of parenting in new ways. So things are changing. With today's mobile, interactive, and network media environment, we're living through one of the most profound shifts in recent history in how we engage with culture, knowledge, and socializing. And all of us are really struggling to understand these changes and respond in a way that's going to be a positive force in young people's learning and development. So the world outside the classroom has changed dramatically, but classrooms, not so much. Classroom learning has always had to fight an image problem of being boring and irrelevant to kids' everyday concerns, unresponsive to their personal interests, and teachers have had to struggle to get kids to attend to academics in the face of a growing body of entertainment media that captures their attention and really markets to their needs. This image problem, this gap between the compelling experiences that kids get in their out-of-school context and the kinds of experiences that they're getting in more explicitly educational contexts, this gap is just growing. Kids can text message each other at the dinner table, under their desks at school. They can access the movies, TV shows, information that they want when they want it. They can play games that adjust to their level of interest and expertise that draw them in with visceral interactive experiences. So how do we respond to this growing gap? My suggestion is that instead of shutting out these out-of-school experiences through regulation, monitoring, cracking down, instead of complaining about the corrosive effects of entertainment, media, and kids' peer culture, we really need to work proactively to close the gap and change the roles that classrooms and adults play in young people's informal learning. So my appeal to you today is really to start to look at new media environments of today's youth, not as a space of just problem and concern, but a space of promise and potential that, isn't, that hasn't been realized yet. Today's network media offers an unprecedented opportunity to support learning that's highly personalized, that's learner-centered, driven by passionate interest and social engagement. But very few learners, very few parents, and very few educators are actually taking advantage of this opportunity, and this is something that we found in our research. And the reason for this is that too often we separate the worlds of young people and adults play in education. We hold on to the old boundaries between schooling, peer culture, home life, between what looks and feels like education that we grew up with and what looks and feels like socializing, hanging out, playing. Even if those boundaries were never that real to begin with, in today's network world, they're going to be even more untenable. So in the next 30 minutes or so, I'm going to argue that we need to engage with kids' peer culture's interests in recreational lives outside of school if we really want to tap into the power that new media offers for learning. So I'm going to walk you through several cases of uh, young people's new media practices that hint at some of the ways in which we can bridge this divide and some learning principles that emerge from these cases. Uh, But first, I do think it's important to start with an understanding and appreciation of what this new media world looks like from the kid and youth-centered point of view. So I want to start by painting a picture for you of how kids learn from each other with new media outside of the classroom. And I always find that one of the best ways into these issues is through Pokemon. So it's important to remember that the dispositions of today's teens weren't forged overnight. They're a result of a longer trajectory of growing up in an era of networked and social media. 
Pokemon was and still is a global media sensation that swept childhood culture in the late 90s. The kids who are graduating from college now are our first post-Pokemon generation. <laughs> These are the kids who grew up with ubiquitous social gaming and convergent media as a central part of their peer culture. So after Mario, Pokemon is the second most successful gaming franchise ever. It was a breakthrough media form in a number of ways. First, it created an integrated and synergistic relationship between analog and digital media, but it did it in a way that positioned interactive gaming at the center of the transmedia enterprise. And more specifically, it placed portable gaming, like Game Boy and trading cards, at the center of gameplay. So with these portable formats, gaming ex escapes the confines of the home, infiltrates many more settings of the physical world and the social world because kids can carry these media around with them and engage with their peers wherever they meet them. In addition to the portability, the other important thing about Pokemon is it developed a new format for the narrative content of a series. Currently, there's about 500 different Pokemon, each with its own unique characteristics, powers, ways of evolving. The series isn't particularly complex in a traditional narrative way, like um, in terms of character development or narrative arcs, but it's an incredibly rich knowledge ecology because of the sheer volume of esoteric content that's generated by the series. Traditional children's narratives have a very limited set of characters, a good guy, a bad guy, a sidekick, maybe a love interest. Creators of children's media used to assume that kids couldn't grasp a whole lot of complexity. Pokemon really blew that assumption out of the water. And it's not just that there's a lot of content. The key is that it's, uh, the content is about gaming and it's about social interaction. In other words, the content invites kids to do something with it, collecting, strategizing, brokering, trading. Marketers talk about this as viral or contagious media. For kids, it means media that has social currency. When a kid pulls out a Pokemon deck or a Game Boy, you'll see this kind of flocking behavior. The media is the social glue. It's the common language that, you be, that means you belong to the same cultural universe. After almost every basketball game, like here, that I take my son to, the boys pull out their Game Boys and they start exchanging monsters, tips, and cheats about how to get ahead in the game. The same goes for birthday parties and sleepovers these days, even with parties that my daughter's invited to, there's usually explicit instructions, pack your bathing suit, your sleeping bag, and your Game Boy. And this is what I mean by social media, not just media that's about explicit social communication, but it's media like Pokemon that invites social exchange and engagement around it. So pulling out from the particular case of Pokemon, <clears throat> uh, there's a few sort of higher level principles about peer-based learning that I want to touch on now and that I'll work through as I go through my talk. So the first thing is that communication and literacy isn't about uh, making original creative work, but is about appropriating existing content, often commercial content, and making it your own, personalizing it, using it in your own social world. Um, so this is about cultural references uh, mobilized in a peer group, using these as building blocks for participating in shared sociability. Uh, second, the kids are positioning themselves in flows of knowledge. Kids playing Pokemon draw from a highly dynamic and unstable information environment that's constantly changing. It's too massive for them to memorize and internalize. They don't have to know all 500 Pokemon in order to play, but they know that that universe of information is out there. They access it flexibly and opportunistically as the need to know arises. And third, the source of expertise comes from peers and not just institutionalized authorities. So kids will 
occasionally consult official rule books, but most often they'll turn to their peers for knowledge. If you've ever tried to learn a game like Pokemon or Yu-Gi-Oh, you'll quickly realize that it's almost impossible to learn as an individual unless you have a social context of peers who are knowledgeable about the game. So kids are developing status, reputation, expertise within the context of a peer group, um, and this is about reputation in that peer context, not about some external assessment or fixed standard. So what happens when these Pokemon kids move into adolescence? As kids grow older and into their late teenage years, the sociability around play and fantasy media like Pokemon starts to transition to social media that's centering on friendship and romantic relationships. The kinds of energies that kids use to spend uh, collecting and trading Pokemon cards transitions to collecting friends, posting, linking, and forwarding media on social network sites. For the most part, the friendship-driven spaces like MySpace, Facebook, uh, technologies like IM, text messaging, these are tightly intertwined with the local given social context of school, the kind of intense give and take among peers that I'm sure you're familiar with. When someone comments on your MySpace profile, you're kind of expected to comment back. When somebody puts you on their top eight list of friends, it's kind of awkward if you don't do the same. Teens scour their peers' social network profiles for clues as to what's cool, what's uncool, how to position themselves as a unique individual while also mobilizing shared markers of status. So we tend to think of this kind of teen peer culture uh, in negative terms as peer pressure. But this kind of peer review and reciprocity is also a context of learning and engagement where kids are evaluating and negotiating status with one another as peers and co-participants in a network public space. And this is highly motivating. Unlike their relationship to mainstream media, unlike their relationship to content and activities that adults provision for them, these small-scale local peer publics are ones that they participate in not just as consumers but as producers and distributors of content, knowledge, taste, culture. They make decisions about how to craft their profiles, what messages to write, what kinds of music, video, and artwork they want to post, link, and forward. And these choices about what media to display and circulate are conducted in a public space visible to their peers that have direct consequences to the reputation in social circles that really matter to them the most. So when these Pokemon kids, these Facebook and MySpace kids walk into a classroom, uh, most of you probably know or uh, can imagine what happens in a Wi-Fi-enabled lecture hall. If you've grown up with Pokemon, if you spend most of your waking hours connected to your peers in a constant stream of social exchange, what does it feel like to be asked to focus on a single source of knowledge for 30 minutes? 45 minutes, an hour. In fact, I wonder how many of you have checked your iPhone or Blackberry in the first 10 minutes of this talk. <laughs> so I want to show you a video um, just as a distraction at the 10-minute point uh, that Michael Wesch, who is a U YouTube uh, ethnographer at Kansas U, uh, put together with his students that gives a little bit of a picture of students' experience. Maybe, I don't know if we can turn the light, lights down. Maybe an audio check?
Yeah, it's good. Probably. is that we're seeing an intensifying culture clash between the modes and institutions of learning that were perfected in an industrial age in today's network learning culture. It's not simply that kids are resisting the authority of parents and teachers. Kids have done that for generations. Uh, it's that the world around the classroom has also changed dramatically. Established cultural institutions, whether it's a textbook, the teacher, or the encyclopedia, they aren't the critical passage points for knowledge anymore. Kids are immersed in a network knowledge economy of free-flowing information, constant connectivity. In this context, traditional authoritarian responses are going to elicit new forms of resistance. So I want to show you two videos that illustrate this kind of student response. These are actually part of a video program of YouTube videos that were created by youth lab teens in Chicago as part of a video summit I organized a few years ago. So let me show the first of these videos. kids are carrying camera phones in their pockets and they have the ability to easily post information on online networks, videos like this circulate freely on the internet. Here's another popular genre of student video about their teachers. Now class, as we draw near the trap and the talent show, we must consider that you must behave you will not come. Tarek, Tarek, you grunted. Tarek, don't, don't walk away from me. Tarek, no. So, Leanne, it's not time to put your jacket on. You can only do that in between the time period of 10.15 and 10.30. Adam, are you wearing a baseball cap? Adam? <laughs> So again, videos like this are indicators of the culture clash between traditional top-down, individualized, and standardized educational formats and the peer-based sharing that's flourishing through online networks. Some of this youth voice can lead to greater teacher accountability, and that has happened, but more often they're simply fodder for kids to bond with one another against a common enemy about their shared conditions of oppression. <laughs> so there's tremendous opportunity 
for young people to reap the benefits of today's knowledge networks and media production capabilities. At the same time, there's a tremendous risk of intergenerational disconnect. Uh, the risk is of kids' social worlds being dismissed as trivial and distracting and being cracked down upon. Um, in turn, adults being shut out from any influence on the informal peer learning that kids find so exciting, and as a consequence for kids to become alienated from academic and classroom learning. Adapting to the new realities of social media doesn't have to be about pandering to a lowest common denominator or of giving in to childish desires and impulses. When done right, it's about building new standards that are just as robust as the old ones, but that prepare kids for participation in a world of rapid change and ubiquitous connectivity. So for the rest of this talk, I want to walk through three elements of this paradigm shift and give some examples of what I think are promising directions to bridge some of these intergenerational divides and harness social media in the service of learning and intergenerational engagement. So first is the question of originality versus appropriation. When today's college kids encounter a classroom situation, not only are they Facebooking and texting during lectures or posting damning videos of their teachers on the internet, they also take to the online P2P ecology to support their learning needs. They do things that educators approve of, like forming study groups or sharing resources on bookmarking sites, but they also do things that fly in the face of traditional educational accountabilities, like going to sites like this, like SparkNotes, uh, instead of reading the assigned texts. They'll check out ratemyprofessors.com before picking their classes to figure out who, uh, which instructors are easy graders. Or they'll download ready-made essays online. The case of the Ryerson student threatened with expulsion for starting a Facebook study group is probably one of the most high-profile cases of this culture clash between the ethic of independent work, original work, and the ethic of student-to-student -student sharing that we're seeing gaining more and more traction. At issue is really a set of values about what counts as worthwhile contributions that demonstrate learning. It's a clash between a model that sees knowledge as individualized and private, rather than collective, collaborative, and building on the work of others. That's why we run into problems like the cheathouse.com phenomena. We expect students to be doing original work, but we give them the same assignments. We assess them along standardized measures. Instead of asking them to plug into diverse resources and innovate, we ask them to reproduce the right answers based on an established canon, and then we get upset if they copy other people's work. Now that the flows of knowledge at the student layer are becoming much more robust and speedy, there's really no way we can inhibit that kind of peer-to-peer -peer sharing. So let's shift gears now and look at uh, how issues of appropriation and originality look outside of the classroom in the wilds of the internet. So I want to explore this issue by setting up a quick case of appropriation using internet video. So I want to start from the source. Most people would trace the origins of the internet viral lip sync video to this video, Numa Numa. This was a video from 2004, an eon ago in internet time before the birth of YouTube. And just in case you haven't seen the video, I wanted to share a brief clip. Hello, Salut. Sunt eu, un haiduc. 
So this is the video that rivals the Star Wars Kids video as the most viewed video on the internet. What's important about it is not just how it demonstrated for the first time the power of peer-to-peer -peer and viral video, but the way it set up a new amateur media genre that was completely unexpected. He had no idea that he was building a new genre. Since then, the genre of the webcam lip sync video has really evolved and diversified. Just to show you one example, um, <laughs> the Backdorm Boys, uh, they were lip syncers that became a huge hit about a year after Numa Numa and eventually got famous enough to get mentions in the mainstream U.S. media and clinch professional media deals in China. So here's another quick clip. was clearly imitative, it was appropriative of earlier lip sync videos like Numa Numa, but it introduced a collaborative component as well as a transnational component. It was produced in a much more self-conscious and ironic vein than Numa Numa, as much as snarky commentary on the existing genre of the lip sync video, on American popular culture and music, um, as innovation in lip sync itself. So in the years since Numa Numa and the Backdorm Boys, the genres of viral lip sync video have really proliferated and we're seeing much more done in a collective and collaborative mode. The lip sync video embodies a lot of the key characteristics of viral internet video that make it so attractive to appropriation, imitation, and circulation. There's an element of pleasure in the seemingly spontaneous, ecstatic kind of play and authenticity that's tied to the amateurish nature of the production, the unique pleasure in ga uh, gaining access to a semi-private reality. The low barriers to entry to this kind of amateur production and the culture of appropriation, it means that the videos of this kind become uh, rich uh, sources of incremental innovation. So the next series of videos that I want to show you um, is a genre that came, became popular in the past few years and has taken the collaborative component to a new level. So I just quick thank you to Gardner Campbell for introducing me to this genre. 
So the LipDub video is a genre of video that was developed by students first at the German University Furtwagen. And it's in contrast to the videos of classroom resistance that I showed you earlier. It really involves um, celebrating the space of the school for collaborative and playful media production.
So um, this original University Lipta video has inspired hundreds of similar videos made at other universities and high schools around the world. Each is unique, but each follows the genre conventions of the original, filmed in a spirit of spontaneity. Uh, despite the clearly rehearsed nature of the production, it's all taken in a single shot, no editing. It draws from popular American music, and it ends in a group shot demonstrating the strength of numbers of the collaborative production and a school spirit. It's about showcasing the youth center the peer-driven, the out-of-school life, but also doing it in the context of the school where it's celebrating the school culture and involving the faculty as well. A few videos really stand out in their inventiveness. I'll run this one while I'm um, talking. So uh, this is one from an American high school where they actually, it was a response to a rival high school video, and they filmed the whole thing uh, in reverse. So the students actually had to learn to lip sync their lyrics in reverse, um, and they're dancing backwards. And so you'll see as they move through the... You'll see that it was actually shot completely in reverse motion. Um, So that's an example of one that got a lot of attention. Um, It's also become an international movement, spawning videos in China, Korea, across Europe, and one in Morocco. Um, So it's about youth bonding through a shared international popular peer culture, shared experiences in educational institutions. I wanted to show the Moroccan one just briefly. are really expressions of solidarity, school spirit, faculty-student bonding. They're picking up on the genres of internet video, um, but they really center on this um, 
sharing and solidarity, and they go against the grain of the kind of snarky, ironic, critical videos that we tend to see directed at authoritative and established institutions. They're unabashedly celebratory, and they tend to take up very lowbrow and non-ironic kinds of popular music. The excitement of participating in, the co in a collective creative scene like we see with internet video is in part a function of being part of a knowledge ecosystem of constant change, innovation, flow, of sort of friendly competition, being able to view what other people are seeing, um, innovating based on this kind of it constantly adapting uh, cultural ecosystem. So in their book, uh, The Power of Pull, John Hagel, John Seely Brown, and um, Lang Davidson talk about how today's firms can't operate on the old model of stockpiling and protecting stores of knowledge. Similarly, educational institutions can't assume that a stable canon of knowledge can be transmitted to students and then expect that they will be able to make use of these stocks of knowledge in the world that they graduate into. Today's highly volatile economic and business climate means we need to train young people to be constantly adaptive and to be able to position themselves in the fluid flows of knowledge, to be able to demand and pull from a knowledge ecosystem and not assume that the, it will be delivered to them in stable form. So I want to tell you a story about a young man I interviewed in his early 20s who was an example of somebody who developed a unique career through participating in flows of knowledge online in a network knowledge ecosystem. So this is somebody I interviewed as part of our three-year digital use study. Snafu Dave is a webcomics author and a web designer. He discovered webcomics in the summer of his freshman year when he was bored out of his mind. Uh, he checked out HTML for dummies, borrowed a copy of Photoshop, accessed online tutorials, um, and really learned how to do webcomics on his own. He moved from being a math major to a computer science major to being a design major in school, but all along he said that the school coursework never prepared him for the work that he was actually interested in doing. The stable stocks of knowledge being transmitted in school were not at all in tune with the dynamic cultural ecosystem that he was encountering in the web design and web comics world. Accessing, um, so he was accessing online information, but a key part of the learning was also his embeddedness in a social community around web comics. Uh, he's part of a community of web comics creators that he's very that are var very active online that use social network sites to reach out to their fans. He hosts the web comics of other artists. Uh, he's one of those kids who probably didn't attend a whole lot of classes, and if he was in a Wi-Fi-enabled classroom, he was probably spending more time connecting with his online learning community than his classroom-based one. What looks like a distraction from the point of view of a classroom instructor is a learning opportunity from the perspective of Dave. We're still in the early years of figuring out models for how to enable peer-based engagement in the context of classroom learning. Just a few examples out there. Peer-to-peer -peer university is one experiment in this space, working to collect learners around open courseware uh, uh, in a peer learning model. Another is Howard Rheingold's social media classroom that provides the suite of social media tools for classroom use and supports the community of practice around their use. And there's many, many experiments by individual faculty to customize social media for student participation, making the work of fellow students visible and available to one another. Uh, rather than asking each student to build stocks of knowledge, this is about facilitating flows of knowledge between students and pr promoting a culture of peer-based reciprocity and feedback. And that brings us to the final principle I wanted to touch on, which is reciprocity. So I've already described a little bit about how sharing at the student layer is challenging our models for how to assess uh, student work, the uh, model of individualized achievement. And again, we're seeing a culture clash with how feedback and sharing work in the peer-to-peer -peer online world. 
To illustrate these dynamics, um, I want to describe uh, the experience of another teen in our digital youth project who was part of CJ Pasco's study of kids online. Clarissa is a young woman who comes from a working class home in the San Francisco Bay Area, and she aspires to be a writer. Clarissa participates in an online role-playing board, Faraway Lands, with a few of her friends from school. And to join the site, potential members have to write lengthy character descriptions and receive a moderator's approval. Uh, so the, these descriptions give background on a, the character that one wants to play, its race, its history, location. And she stayed up most of the night writing her first character applications. She submitted it. She got glowing reviews. Um, and it's really, this site has become a place for her to hang out with a few of her existing friends from school, but really to develop a lot of new friendships and mentoring relationships online. She's gotten to know people from all over the country, and she even has one friend in Spain who she's developing a role-playing scenario with. So this is uh, some text I ex excerpted from the rules of another role-playing board. And what I want to highlight here is the ethic of reciprocity that you see in these peer-based learning environments. Take criticism constructively and give it out the same. Participants are both writers and critics of each other's work. Uh, so her, Clarissa and her role-playing friends, they take writing very seriously. They have high standards. They constantly cr critique one another. In this interview, she's indicating some of the ways in which her writing in role-playing is not the same as her writing in school. Online, she's not doing it for a grade. Instead, she's driven by her own interests and passions and a nurturing, creative community that really respects and appreciates her work. The evaluation and appreciation by peers who share her same passionate interests feels both more authentic and more consequential for her. Now, at the same time, the skills that she picked up in the role-playing world have served her well in school. <clears throat> for one of her school assignments, she chose to write a 100-page screenplay based on one of her characters she developed in Faraway Lands. And in her college applications, she writes about role-playing as preparation to be a screenwriter. In her applications, she submitted a creative writing sample based on her role-playing writing, and she was admitted to both Emerson and Chapman, and she feels that these writing samples were a really big part of why she got in. Now, Clarissa is an unusual success story in being able to translate between the formal and informal, between the peer culture and the school culture. Most kids aren't able to do that. So the last example I want to talk about um, is the work of one of my colleagues in the Digital Media and Learning Initiative, Nicole Pinkard, um, who's really been working intentionally to bridge this divide between formal and informal, between interest-driven and standards-driven learning. So Nicole has been working for many years to develop after-school programs and new media production that bridge the cultures of entertainment that kids are immersed in in their peer culture and the cultures of school-based learning. So she's focused on making media like rap music or digital video as a productive way of bridging these divides. And last year, Nicole helped redesign a 5,000-square-foot space in the first floor of the Harold Washington Library in downtown Chicago. And this is a space where teens have access to laptops, high-end computers, a recording studio, performance space, game machines, books, and also, importantly, adult mentors who have ex expertise and who share those same passionate interests that the kids do. Just months after the space opened, it's been buzzing with activity, and the librarians have seen a huge uptick in uh, book circulation as well as laptops and other media that the space has to offer. 
Historically, museums, libraries, and after-school clubs has functioned as an interface between schools, homes, and local communities. Nicole's work builds on these existing kinds of models, but it takes it one step further by being very deliberate in an effort to link up the learning across these different settings. And as part of this, um, Nicole has also created an online social network site that's centered on these um, interests that kids have. These are spaces that are centered on youth, but bring in other adults and mentors who share the interests, who, who share the passions that the youth bring to these new media production activities and who can also help mediate the gaps between school um, and out-of-school learning. And Nicole will be talking a little bit more about this work tomorrow, so I encourage you to attend her session if you are interested in uh, learning more. Okay, so to wrap up, these are still early days, early days in the birth of social media and early days in our experimentation to harness these new media in the service of learning. But I firmly believe that the opportunity really is out there to make peer-based learning that kids are doing out of school matter for their academic pursuits. Innovation is happening at the edge and slowly filtering into our core institutions of education. The examples I've shown you of web comics, of internet video, they may seem trivial, but this is how disruptive innovation works. We still have the weight of existing assumptions, practices, institutions working against us. The ways in which we've historically separated out kids' peer cultures from learning, the ways in which we've created an opposition between education and entertainment media, the way we've created institutional boundaries that separate home, school, and community, the way we've insisted on individualized assessment. These are all things working against us. But I've hoped that I've managed to convince you that for those who are willing to experiment and seize the opportunities that today's digital media have to offer, there is tremendous opportunity to expand the learning potential for new, a new generation of kids. The technology itself has no power to transform learning. It's really up, up to us to take that technology and do something new with it, something that's nascent still today, something that doesn't reproduce the same tired old scripts that pit kids' cultures against op in opposition with adult learning goals. These experiments and explorations won't succeed, spread, or scale without a dedicated network of educators, kids, and parents who are working to build a new model of learning for the 21st century. In closing, I want to acknowledge that the work that I've been talking about today is also a massively collaborative effort. Um, here's some of my collaborators on the digital use study. Uh, and I want to underscore that uh, this work comes out of a highly distributed and collaborative network that I've been involved in as part of the MacArthur Foundation's Digital Media and Learning Initiative. Our network has started with a core uh, set of researchers and projects, but we're very eager to reach out and expand the conversation and to learn from a broader set of partners and efforts. So I invite you all to participate. Um, I think there's uh, copies of our report on the table there for anybody who's interested. and. Um, I'd be happy to have some discussion. Thank you. global perspective in terms of have you seen any, for example, have you seen any um, American high school young people use Japanese pop music or uh, learn how to look at problems from a different cultural perspective? Yeah. 
Now that's a really good question. I think we still see sort of a dominance of a lot of American popular culture in the global youth culture arena, but we're definitely seeing trends that disrupt that unidirectional flow. So actually, most of the work that I do in my own case studies are about Western fans of Japanese popular culture. So, you know, it's, I mean, I find it tremendously interesting that there's a whole subculture of American youth who identify more with Japanese media than their local media. So there's opportunities out there for kids to identify with different niche media. Now, the thing that I think is difficult to really um, pin down, though, is whether that's leading to a real awareness of other cultures, because my, I find that the kind of media that circulates internationally tends to be media that's stripped of a lot of local cultural reference. So part of the reason why Japanese animation is so popular around the world is because it doesn't use Japanese actors. It's placed in fantasy settings. So there's a sort of a global youth culture that has things like samurai ninja, fast cars, medieval fantasy, certain kinds of sports, uh, wizards, warriors. And everybody can recognize that. And it's really not about a particular culture, though. It's about a global, mashed-up youth culture. So it's just as likely that American kids will do ninja stuff as Japanese kids. Maybe more likely, actually. But it's not, it's not that they identify as Japanese, necessarily. So I think it's a really interesting set of questions. Um, yeah. I'm a science teacher. Yeah. Um, so this idea of uh, knowledge is collaborative and you know, we did a couple studies at my school and really found that they're just spending so much time together, always. They have their video chat on while they're doing their homework. They're doing it individually, they're not talking, but they're just not alone, and they can ask each other a question if they want. What type of both in-class and at-home assignments do you find really um, capitalize on that fact that knowledge is collaborative and no longer sort of pigeonhole them into it has to be the original um, just individual work, everyone has the same assignment, like you touched on at the beginning. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's a really challenging question, and I'm not a teacher or an expert on that, but I think that you know I can point to some of the work of my colleagues, like Katie Salen, who's just started a new school in New York um, that's based on a games-based pedagogy. So every she's put the state standards under these quests that kids have to solve collaboratively. So in order to solve... Uh, to achieve the goal of getting the troggles off the island by the way they have to learn fractions and by the way they have to, you know, learn how to, you know, how motion works and things like that. And they, the achievement of that goal is collaborative. Like they're in teams and groups working on it, but they actually get in contact with this. It's, again, it's uh, this need-to-know idea. So they're working together to accomplish a group goal, but along the way, they actually need to know all this stuff. And they go out and seek that knowledge as part of uh, solving that quest. So that's one example I know of. But I do think it's incredibly challenging for teachers because um, there's still so much accountability at the individual layer. So even if you want to support the group work, there's this constant tension institutionally, I think. So um, this assumes that the children find their way to the new media on their own. Um, 
I'm very involved with a group of at-risk kids in the Central Valley who are not as experimental and they're much shyer yeah. uh, and limited in resources, in all resources. And I wonder, is there a way, uh, is there anything that exists to help motivate children to bypass, in a, in a way, the traditional school, 19th century school model to go into this that you could kind of uh, be the spark that... Um, you know, motivates them to try this kind of uh, new media? Uh, are there teachers? Are there, is there any facility that we could tap into in the Central Valley? Yeah. Uh, well, um, so I think there's two issues. I mean, one is sort of the basic access issue, which I didn't talk about because um, it's a very complex issue. But I think there's um, the, the problem with the fact that all of this stuff is happening in informal private spaces means that the digital divide is worse for certain populations because schools aren't performing their equalizing function. And in fact, schools don't allow access to <coughs> informal media use for the most part. So it's really up to working with communities, with parents or community organizations to bridge that kind of divide unless we see a radical change in school culture, which I think is fairly unlikely. So I think that's where you know experiments like what Nicole's doing with the library system. So is there a network of institutions locally, whether it's boys and girls clubs or libraries, that can provide that kind of in-between informal space and also adult mentorship or you know, c connection with more knowledgeable peers in that space. I mean, those are the solutions that I think can work. The, the other space that we found that sometimes works is the school computer lab. If you have a really cool lab teacher who's read, willing to get into trouble. So that's, um, that's one space where sometimes we find that kids who don't have access have that more sort of open space for experimentation. But it is a really challenging issue because it's precisely that kind of more informal, private, social space that's really hard to replicate in an institutional, um, you know, direct intervention kind of framework. Yeah. Um. Um, I'm also actually, I'm a high school math teacher, and I've, in going to different talks, I've heard great ideas for English classes where they can edit their papers online together, or, or history classes, or even science classes, and I feel like with, um, with math, I've had this really, um, this struggle of how do I get my kids to interact? Um, and I, I have web pages for my classes, which I mean are mainly just informative of you know homework assignments and test dates and resources where they can go find other information online. Um, but I tried putting up a forum page where they could ask questions, and because I, I do think it's really helpful, you know how I, I want my kids to work together on their homework, and not a single kid used it. Right. So how do I get them? to use something like a forum, which, which they use naturally, but to use it to talk about math. And I know not everyone loves calculus, but I mean, <laughs> but I do. And I want them to, <laughs> but I want them to use their, their calculus form to ask each other questions about calc because it's really, really hard to learn it on your own. And so how do I get them to start really interacting from home? I mean, I can get them to kind of work in a classroom together, but from home, how do I get them working together on projects using their digital media? 
Yeah. Well, I think one of the issues, you know, like I've been talking a lot about interest and passion-driven learning, and I mean, I think your comment about how you love calculus, but not everyone else does, I mean, that's very telling because the issue is that there's certain things that we're asking kids to learn that they don't have a passionate interest in, and other things that we're asking them to learn that they do, and that modes of engagement are very different. So, like the example I gave about Katie's quest, it's like, okay, so... You know, maybe these are kids that could get passionate about a certain kind of gaming or about making something. And could you mobilize? I know calculus might be a little bit harder than fractions for that kind of thing. <laughs> but, you know, it's like you could mobilize. You know, it's not that they want to learn fractions or are passionate about fractions, but it's mobilized in the service of something else that they find passionate and interesting. There's certain subject matters that are just going to be a lot harder for that and challenging, I think, and I think that's what you're running up against. But this is where there's sort of this values issue. Like, do you, does everybody have to learn calculus? I mean, this is where the really hard questions come in. Does everybody have to learn calculus? Or do you want, you know, the kids who are passionate about calculus to be sort of the leaders and guiders in that space, and that maybe there's other kids who specialize in other things, you know. Or you bring it in under some other activity that um, is going to ignite that kind of social passion. Because the, the social stuff is very difficult to force, and I think that's, that's the bottom line, yeah. So uh, I teach a course in the role of media in public health. And prior to your presentation this morning, I felt that the course was stuck back in the 20th century. And after your presentation, I feel like it's back in the 1600s. <laughs> um, but you know, the, 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 the fundamental challenge in, in the, the traditional model of public health is that there's knowledge that's generated on high that the public needs that is dis to be disseminated in a unidirectional way from experts and health professionals to the publics who need it. And if, needless to say, that model uh, is no longer in existence in terms of the real world. But the challenge is the following. If childhood obesity is the problem, and health professionals know that, and all of this is going on amongst peers without any contribution or penetration by the adult professional knowledge-based culture, what do we do about that? How do public health professionals insert themselves or seek invitations into the world of youth, and how do we sustain their attention to important issues in public health because it's not all, it's, you, the goal is behavior change and maintenance of that behavior change. And so you need to surround young people and build peer networks that are supportive for the long haul where the attention span is so short. So I, my question is, what are your thoughts on this? Because I don't know where to start. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a really interesting challenge. I mean, some of the things that I've seen, not exactly in your space, but related, have to do with... Um, you know, certain youth um, online campaigns um, around, uh, you know, things like internet safety, appropriate behavior online. And, um, you know, MTV has developed a campaign, I can't remember what it's called, but where they've, um, they've developed these kind of snarky cards that you can 
text message to people to, who are harassing you in inappropriate ways and things like that, or just things that have the vibe of the peer culture that aren't really about you know broadcasting uh, a certain message, but are about providing little tools within the peer ecosystem that they can use in, in opportunistic moments. Um, you, so those are some of the experiments. I think it's really early. I mean, often, you know, just working with, um, you know, entities who have cachet within the popular culture. So the thing is that a lot of this stuff, it's not that there's not adult intervention. It's just that the commercial industries and media industries tend to own the attention space. So some of this is about brokering between the institutions that are traditionally associated with education and public policy and institutions that are associated with commercial entertainment. And I think that level of brokering has to happen as well, and I don't think that there's, I mean, that's a cultural divide that's often really challenging, but maybe worth looking at. Um, yeah. One thing I'm curious about is, uh... so I'm someone who studied in the Indian education system and then in the Singapore system and then the US system, right? So the Singapore and the Indian system made me study really, really hard, <laughs> right? And when I came to America, I think what I was studying in college is, you know, a lot of what I was learning, I, or my peers were learning, I had learned in grade eight. And as the economy progresses more and more towards analytical tools where, you know, being very comfortable with numbers and things is important, how do you see a, uh, and you know, to be fair, I look at my American classmates, they're so much better than me at being creative, uh, their people skills when I started out just so much better than mine. How do you see the tension balancing between those two, uh, where you know, on one hand you have a ton of rigor, on the other hand you have people spending only two hours a day studying? Right, right. Yeah, no, I think that's a really good question and one that sort of points to some of the broader global political economic tensions. Um, you know, I think the, the, what we're finding with some of the early research, which is still very early, is that uh, kids who do find a learning pathway that's centered around this more demand-driven, interest-driven model actually do better on the traditional indicators as well. So that's kind of the ideal where you get the best of both worlds, right? You get um, kids who are trained to be able to develop their own specialized, personalized, and interest-driven learning trajectories, but who also have a robust set, set of basic and traditional skills. So I think that's the ideal model. I think the reality is more exactly what you've described, is that it's framed as a trade-off situation, like either you're creative and kind of a slacker, or you're like rigorous and you work hard. and you, you and. The, the ideal, again, it's that culture clash, right? And the, the thing that I've been trying to push for, which I agree is still really nascent, is something that actually enables kids to do both in productive ways so that you're not just sort of memorizing facts and acquiring skills in anticipation for something you might want to do, but you're actually gaining the ability to learn those relevant skills in a demand-driven mode when you have the need and motivation to do so because more and more, you know, those, those basic skills 
or those standardized skills are going to become, you know, there, there's not a standardized skill set that's going to remain stable. Even if you study really hard and do all that stuff right, it's not like, oh, okay, then, you know, I've learned this programming language in school and I can use it now. Well, it's because the it's because the classroom learning is disconnected from a broader motivational structure. So then the motivation for learning is very low because it's inauthentic and it's not tied to any meaningful identity or reputation in the social world. Now when the learning is tied to something that's a meaningful reputation or achievement system that's part of a longer term trajectory that people can imagine and identify from themselves, then you know, that trade-off is going to look really different, I think. Yeah. Social and emotional development of young people. I certainly can understand how uh, young people do better academically with personalized, interest-driven uh, learning. But I'd like to know if you've been looking at all at the emotional and social aspect of how the children are developing uh, the ability to know themselves, the ability to develop empathy. Uh, Nonverbal learning communication is one-to-one -one interaction. Uh, how, what's happening with these young people that are so much on the computer that they're multitasking when they're feeding their babies? Uh, because I think those developmental pieces are equally as important, and I'm wondering if they've been looking at that at all. Definitely more and more research that's looking at the developmental issues around this. I think it's still pretty early just because the landscape around this has been changing so quickly that you, you can see the social changes really quickly, right? Because the social practices adapt very quickly, but the developmental changes take a little bit of time to track and look at. So I think we're, there's some research that's coming out, and in fact, um, our new work that's following up on the initial sort of broad fact-finding mission is going to start, uh, you, you know, we're going to be working more collaboratively with developmental uh, psychologists just because we agree that this is an important area. But I do think that our knowledge base is still pretty early in that area. I think we're running out of time. Yeah. So you're going to be around all day, I believe. So I encourage anybody to come up and talk to you. Thank you very much.